Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Mari Walters, Executive Officer of Sports Dietitians Australia. Um, really thrilled to have you joining us today. And we've got Linda Norman um, with us today uh, to talk to you about optimising staff performance. So this is particularly targeted at our members who are, you know, employing fellow sports dietitians um, in the workplace. So I'll um, facilitate the webinar um, for you today. Uh, just before I introduce Linda, a heads up that the webinar is being recorded, so it will be available um, for viewing at a later stage um, as well. So Linda, um, Linda Norman is a partner at HR Plus. So Linda has more than 20 years experience in HR management and has worked and consulted in a professional capacity across a range of settings and industry sectors, um, including importantly, the sports industry. So Linda has a generalist background and consults on a wide range of issues, including strategic human resource management, conflict management, performance management, and training and development management um, as well. So um, a big welcome to Linda. Linda's going to take us through her presentation. Um, so we invite you to ask any questions um, that you think of throughout Linda's presentation using the chat box. Um, and what I'll do is I'll facilitate those questions at the end of Linda's um, presentation so that she can answer those. So um, we do ask that you do put the questions in writing into the chat box. If we do run out of time, it means we can then ask Linda to um, answer those questions for you after the webinar. So as I've indicated, the webinar is going to be recorded and will be available on Moodle um, following today's webinar. So enjoy. We hope there's lots of um, helpful information. Um, and we know there will be with Linda's expertise and presentation. Um, and I'm going to hand over to Linda now to, to do her presentation. Thank you, Linda. Thank you very much, Marie, for that introduction. Uh, yes, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. This is the first webinar that I've uh, presented for um, SDA. So I'm delighted to be here. Uh, talking to you today about uh, optimising staff performance. It's a fantastic topic because staff performance is all about productivity, about getting great outcomes um, in your workplace. So let's go through a series of slides. I've got some actually pretty uh, early questions that have come in through the office. So I'll uh, talk about those as we go through and, and any questions that you might um, put in the chat as well. So we're going to talk today about optimising staff performance, but also managing underperformance. What happens if staff aren't performing to the, to the level that you're expecting? And if there's inappropriate behaviour in your workplace, what do you do about that? And also taking disciplinary action. If it gets to the point where the, uh, if performance is not up to scratch, what are your next steps? So, so let's look at optimising staff performance. So um, research repeatedly confirms that motivated, committed, engaged staff will outperform their peers significantly in some cases, resulting in higher productivity, customer satisfaction, and ultimately financial outcomes for the business. So it is really important that organisations, no matter what the size uh, no matter what the profile of the organisation, whether you're running your own practice with a couple of consultants working for you, practitioners working for you, or whether you're part of a big corporation, you're the manager or supervisor of a section, it's important that effective staff management programs and practices are in place to optimise staff performance. So Employees will perform better in roles when they have a shared understanding of what's expected of them. This is so important that they understand what standards, what tasks they need to do, what standards they need to achieve and how their overall role contributes to the overall objectives of the organisation. So who's responsible for improving or managing staff performance in your practice? maybe you've got you're thinking about this it's the manager's role um it's surprising the responses we get here 
It's the manager of the staff who is responsible to ensure the staff reporting to them have the knowledge and skills to perform well in their roles. So through a combination of structured and unstructured conversations and feedback, managers can, it's a manager's role to facilitate effective staff performance by using a number of steps, clearly articulating organisation and role objectives and standards. That's often done through a job description or a contract if you're employing contractors. So a document that spells out very, very clearly what is expected. Um, and the document shouldn't just be tasks that I have to complete. It's the standards of those tasks. It could, the KPIs, essentially, the key performance indicators that you're expecting of those tasks. And the document has to be reasonable. Um, we were talking earlier about Sometimes we see job descriptions with an almost impossible list of tasks. And then down the track, somebody ends up being performance managed because they're not meeting all those tasks. And when you look at them, you think, you know, well, no wonder they're not meeting the tasks because there's a hundred things on the list. They're achieving most of them, but not these five. And that's what they're being performance managed on. So the, the, it's often a negotiation. That position description or that scope of contract is a discussion that doesn't need to be, should be had at the start of an engagement of a staff member, but also as, as the role shapes out because things change and each different person can bring new qualities, experiences, insights uh, into a relationship, into an employment relationship. So you might need to tweak that, that position description and the scope of the role as the person uh, down the track, as the person um, becomes more familiar with your organisation and as you become more familiar with them. And you might find you have to rein things in and therefore be more specific, put timeframes and things like that in that documentation. But it has to be documented. If it's not documented clearly, then there can be easily, easily be conflict and misunderstanding and the flexibility around that document. So a manager also encourages and facilitates knowledge and skill acquisition. If the person's not performing in their role, maybe they don't have the knowledge. They're just bumbling around. Maybe they don't have contact with their manager, enough contact to be able to clarify the areas that they're not sure about. So they're just having a good guess and undertaking their role. We're dealing with professionals here. Professionals generally know what they're doing. It's a matter of sometimes of, of making sure the scope is clear to both parties. And if there aren't skills involved, if you're dealing with members who are uh, staff members who are more junior, evolving in their practice and skills, then they're going to need guidance. A university degree is not enough, as we all know. It takes many, many years of experience to be competent in a field um, and therefore they're going to need on the job guidance and support and managers who are available and have the time to, to provide that to, to somebody who is new in a role but also who is a junior in their role. That's the manager's job to encourage and facilitate knowledge and skill acquisition to establish and monitor workplace standards so you're the one managing that staff member and they're, they're, what they're doing and the standards that they're achieving. It's really hard in a situation where the manager's not there all the time, which I would imagine would happen a lot in your environment and particularly now with COVID as well. So then there needs to be additional uh, checks and balances in place. There might be uh, if your staff are working with clients then it might be uh, feedback feedback um, that you're receiving from those clients. There might be automatically generated feedback or spot checks that your staff member knows is going to happen, uh, perhaps not when, who, but there will be checks uh, to ensure that the work is being done to the standard that you're expecting. And, of course, you might be collecting data as well, outcomes um, in, res in results, outcomes, from your staff member's performance. And, and if things aren't going right, you might be receiving grievances or complaints 
in which there are flags, of course, that, that you need to intervene and, and uh, try and resolve something that might be going off the rails or there's a misunderstanding between your staff member and the, the person that they're working with or the team or the organisation they're working with. So it does require time, <laughs> all of this. That's part of a manager's role. Um, one of the things we hear is, I don't have time for this, <laughs> especially a staff member who's taking a bit of your time. But you know, that's what your job is as a manager. It is to have the time and make sure there's time in your workload, in the contract that you've negotiated, perhaps with your boss, for the process of managing and overseeing and mentoring your team, which does take time. <laughs> Establishing and monitoring workplace standards, encouraging and rewarding high performance. This is so, so important too. Of, um, look, we've heard practitioners in our field say of all the comments you make to your staff member out of 10, uh, eight out of 10 should be positive. In words of encouragement, positivity, um, thanking them for a job well done, uh, only two of those 10 should be problems or areas of improvement, um, feedback for improvement, that kind of thing. So by all means, please don't be a manager who all your staff hear from you is negativity about what they haven't done, what wasn't right today, because that makes somebody very nervous, uh, uncomfortable, anxious. Um, where productivity will decline in situations like that. So you want people to enjoy their work experience and be rewarded by positive interactions and encouragement. And where there are things not going right, then using that opportunity as a learning experience to move forward. Unless it's very serious, of course, and then we might have to, you know, work in discipline reaction here. But on the whole, most workplaces are character characterised by you know, a high level of engagement with staff, um, resolving issues as they come up as quickly as possible and encouraging staff to learn and grow and allowing them to make mistakes um, because everybody does. <laughs> Even experienced managers make mistakes. Nobody's infallible in that regard. Um, improving staff confidence and engagement and they will be more confident and engaged in a high performing environment where the managers are involved in, in um, a staff member's uh, journey at work. Building managers roles to build staff capability to anticipate and resolve workplace problems and conflict too. So um, part of a manager's role is to not, not necessarily handle, handle the problems, particularly in a professional workplace. Essentially, your staff member should be able to handle most of the routine issues that come their way. And part of their development is to learn how to handle conflict with their clients, stakeholders like sporting teams, etc., and to manage that as well, not flick everything to you as soon as an issue comes up. Uh, understandably, a, a very junior or young professional might be um, lack confidence in this area. And so you will mentor them and eventually they will have the skills just by being present and talking to you and, and working with you to resolve uh, conflict situations as well. But in a professional workforce, we're trying to build up the capability of the professionals underneath us so that they they can then take on our roles in the future and be ready to take on because professional people love that uh, growth, personal growth and, and career development. It's a high, it's a, a significant motivator for a professional person, um, sometimes way beyond even salary. So it is a, a key. And of course, building positive workplace relationships is, is the manager's role as we've spoken about now don't but don't throw your manager in the deep end um, managers who are who are less experienced or or lack experience in a particular area of management should be should be mentored and trained and coached to be a, an effective manager and that might mean internal mentoring by another manager. If you're in a bigger organization, that can happen. If you're in a very small organization, you're running your own practice, mentoring 
is really important and encouraged. If you can link up with other more experienced people in your field who are willing to mentor you, work with you, you pick up the phone, oh, I've got a problem, <laughs> what, you, what should I do? Gee, we've got mentors uh, in our fields. We've got a range of colleagues that I can pick up the phone and go, oh, goodness, I've got a hairy one here. <laughs> what would you do? Um, and that way we learn and grow. And, and we've been in our field for goodness, I can't tell you how long now. But it's still, um, still, after decades of experience, things still come up where you need to pick up the phone, have a good network around you. So don't throw your new manager into the deep end. To effectively able to manage staff performance, your manager needs to acquire skills and experience in holding performance management conversations. There's an art to it and a skill to it, which comes with experience and exposure and self-reflection and uh, decisions in a team. Making team-based decisions can really help if a new manager is unsure. So be them, be there for your manager. Um, and perhaps encourage them to do a, a course. If they haven't done a leadership development or a new manager's course or even an experience or strategic management course, like there's a num leadership development courses are tiered from brand new membership member, team leader through to strategic manager, several levels. Um, so seek out, if you've got a budget, seek out those courses, those programs for your new manager. And these external programs, or in, maybe there's internal um, sports commission might run them, the peak bodies uh, in, our, in, our, in, in our states or in your state might run these uh, programs where you can network with other sports professionals in your state um, or other organisations, people from other organisations. They're good, a good alternative or, or complementary to in in-house learning. So a, a manager of staff or a manager of a business of contractors, same applies, needs to acquire skills and experience in holding performance management discussions. They need to practice uh, policies and tools to support performance management. There are performance management programs, policies, all of that helps. Um, to allocate time to hold regular conversations with reporting staff. As I mentioned before, this takes time and time needs to be allocated in a job uh, for this kind of thing and be paid for that time too. Not that you've got, as a manager, a full list to-do list and if something goes wrong or you have to put new additional resources into the management of an employee issue or contractor issue, that, that's on top of your workload. There should be an anticipation, expectation that a manager's role and the bigger the team you have, the more of your time will be spent in this fashion. Um, and an encouragement recognition by management, your um, uh, committee of management or board, if you're in a bigger organisation, to undertake effective performance management. Sometimes that means a formal process of performance appraisal. Some of the larger organisations have this sort of thing. Um, but if not, informal performance management, there's still a, a, a time commitment and, and uh, ideally a commitment to that from your organisation. So conversations with employees are important at every stage of the employment life cycle. So when, clearly while they're onboarding, induction is probably the most critical time because the highest number of resignations are in that first three months to six months of employment. It's when someone walks in the door, signs up, rose-tinted glasses, wow, this is just what I want, and then they go, oh, no, this is not what I expected. So the onboarding process is very important but in particular, when you're hiring someone for a role or for a contract, it the role has to be sold as it is, warts and all. If it's a great role, tell it all the great parts, but also say the parts that can be frustrating and not so great in the role. So that when the person walks into your organisation, all of a sudden they're not hit with all the bad things <laughs> about their job uh, or their workplace or their clients. Um, or the people they're working with. So um, you want to create an accurate picture for a new hire so that when they hit the ground in your organisation um, or they sign the contract with you, 
that they're already have, have an expectation that's closely aligned with yours. And then the onboarding process is giving them those organisation ready, job ready skills over a period of time to, to perform well uh, in your organisation. So probationary employees, they're the ones, you know, they've been there six months or less, um, those new employees. Also employees who've changed roles. If you're in a bigger organisation or even a small one, you can have people move from one role or another. And we say, if that's the case, to set them up well for their new role, assume that they're a new employee. You're going through a similar onboarding process with them. Allocate time for this so that they have the conversations, receive the information, um, you're overseeing their work as best you can to ensure a smooth transition into their new role. Not that they get to their new role and go, oh, this is not what I expected. You know, I don't want this. And we've seen this. You know, I've been in HR a long time. <laughs> I've seen a lot of things. We've seen employees take on promotions that they're so excited about in six months, screaming because they hate the job. Um, it's not what they expected or the hours are just horrific. They can't manage it. And they want to go back to their old job, but the job's not there anymore because it's been backfilled. What to do with this great employee who's become disillusioned? The job's not there and they're looking to exit the organisation. So this preparation, not over-promising preparation before someone's hired and that onboarding is very, very important. And it does require a time and resource commitment to do that. Young employees, um, in, in this case, graduates, <laughs> graduates coming out of university with their uh, qualifications, some of them don't have a lot of experience in the workplace. So they might have just worked for McDonald's or some casual jobs that have been going through uni. They need to be taught a lot. There's, there's a lot of, of work involved in preparing a, a graduate or, or onboarding a graduate into the workplace. They've got a lot to learn. So they take a bit more work. <laughs> more resources, more time. Um, yes, they're cheaper. So that's that's the advantage for employees, uh, for employers, and they can slot into a team that's existing uh, really well. And, you know, we should all be looking at employing graduates, of course, to give them a kickstart into their profession as much as we can, but they will take more, more of your time. Uh, Long-serving employees, mature-age employees are sometimes overlooked. They also have uh, needs and, and need to be looked after so their performance doesn't decline, so their interest in your organisation doesn't decline. And research has, over time and, has time and time again shown that long-serving employees or mature-age employees are just, you know, their productivity, their contribution is, is, is significant, and but they also need the same uh, checking in on conversations with periodic conversations to make sure they're still enjoying their roles, they're engaged and therefore their productivity is good and they're delivering a good um, service for your organisation. And contractors are the same. We can't think that we all of a sudden employ a contractor um, and, and they're just going to hit the ground running. Not necessarily the case because a contractor's experience is, of course, comes from previous organisations that they might have worked for, which might be different to yours. So it's the same onboarding process, checking process as you would for an employee, particularly if they're doing a lot of work for you and they're working on a regular basis. Um, their performance um, outcomes need to be managed and time needs to be um, allocated for that particular role, the scope of work that they might be doing, how are they delivering that? Is that meeting your expectations, for example? Is it within your budget, your scope? Um, okay, how often should staff get feedback? A really good question. Okay, um, we should have a poll here. How often do you think? Daily, weekly, monthly? Look, it's as often as need be, but it should be frequent, at least every week for experienced employees who've been with you for ages and much more frequently for new employees, for junior employees, those people, contractors who you've just taken on, the feedback needs to be much more frequent. Um, and then it can be relaxed when you're 
on the same page and things are working well, less feedback, of course. So it's horses for courses in particular, but there needs to be feedback. And in a remote working situation, also, don't out of sight, out of out of mind is, is not a good working relationship. People feel disconnected if they they feel a manager and their team has forgotten um, about them because they happen to be working remotely. Make sure, even more so with situations like that, that you're connecting with your people more frequently. Um, in situations where you've got younger people, new staff and remote working people. So what are some of the things we can say to give positive feedback? Remember, that's what we want to do most of, positive feedback. I would like to congratulate you for the amazing work you did with that team. We've had such good, you know, I've heard good feedback. Um, I was contacted yesterday by the um, team manager who uh, gave me some feedback, for example, or you're really good at working with groups of people. I watched you briefly last week when I happened to be you know, at your location and I thought you handled um, a particular situation real, very well. Well done. Well, I would like to share some recent feedback about the great work we, you did with, I think that was my earlier example. So they're the sorts of things that, that you can say to your uh, employee to encourage them, give them positive feedback, and they'll love you for it. They'll probably go home and tell their partner, children, friend, uh, whoever that, you know, um, their manager said something nice to them today. <laughs> And to be honest, the more you do it, they probably won't do that, but it's a good thing to do that um, on a regular basis. So the types of conversations you can have to improve job understanding, productivity. Okay, I'd like to schedule a check-in meeting with you to see how you feel. You're going in your new role. Great. Great thing to do for a new staff member. What aspects of your role are you enjoying? Not enjoying? What might you be unsure about? What might you be having difficulties about? What might you be needing more support, instruction, assistance? So that's a kind of another check-in conversation. You might not say all of that in one sentence, of course. <laughs> there are options. You could say, I'd like to uh, check in on what you're not enjoying, not enjoying or unsure about. You know, you've been with the in this role for a month now. Let's try and anticipate, weed out any areas that could be causing uncertainty and let's deal with those in the next conversation, any difficulties you might be uh, facing. And that the same conversation for it can be for um, a staff member who's, who's current, who've been with you for a while. Do you need further training to meet your job requirements or to improve your understanding, skills and efficiency? And we're not talking about formal training necessarily going on an expensive course. We may not have a budget for that, but it might be on the job training or mentoring or linking them up with somebody else who, who has the skills and experience. And in a professional environment, most professionals are very happy to work for free with others um, in their field if there's an area of expertise they can be um, sharing in a just a colleague, collegiate situation. Do you feel you can achieve the critical aspects, aspects of your role in the hours currently allocated to your role? A really good question. If you think they've got that long, really long job, uh, job description, a list of to-dos that can be quite extensive that they might not be able to fit in in the time you're anticipating that's a high workload situation or maybe you're seeing the person struggling in that workload particularly if they're new to the role it takes longer to do things um, someone more experienced can do things much more quickly but in you when they're new to a role you're you're a little bit more flexible and lenient with somebody as they're picking up the ropes um, so constantly, if you feel they're struggling, you're going to have to manage, massage the hours and uh, negotiate on the hours to make sure that your employee isn't working unreasonably or working hours that are not being paid for, that you haven't accommodated in the salary or the hourly rate that you're paying them through their contract. 
do you think you're on track to meet your deadline for whatever it is? What do you think would be an achievable target or outcome for this project, for example? So if you're looking to improve engagement, satisfaction and motivation, is your new role meeting your expectations? It's really good check-in. Um, after the first week, after the first month, after the first two months, remember, the highest turnover of new employees is in the first three to six months. So if there's something not working right before that employee goes back into the job market and starting to look for another role, it's much better to have a conversation first <laughs> um, to try and stop that process, potentially anyway. Do you feel any aspects of your role should be changed to enable you and the team to achieve better outcomes? Are you getting the support you need from me, the team, or your colleagues, your manager? Ask the question. Be honest and open. Are you? Are, are you? Are they getting what they need from you? Do you need to put in more, or, or, or do things differently to support them better? Is your organisation meeting your expectations? If not, are there any suggestions you would like to make where we can improve? Now, that's a great, powerful question to ask a new staff member, particularly somebody who's come from somewhere else. So they've got other experiences in other organisations. They might be very willing to share some ideas for improvement with you and uh, for you to be receptive to those ideas and to implement some of them um, is only going to increase satisfaction and engagement in your organisation. And for a longer term staff member, you've successfully worked with our organisation for four years now, for example. What would you like to explore or achieve, say, in the next six to 12 months? Or an older worker? A great question to ask someone who's been with you for a long time to show your commitment in them and to ensure that they remain to be engaged um, in your organisation. So should uh, feedback be formal or informal? Well, at first informal, that's how feedback typically is given. And that's the right place to do it too. Informal performance management involves timely conversations with staff undertaken informally, which may or may not be documented. Informal feedback conversations um, initiated by a skilled manager in a, in a collaborative, respectful and non-threatening way is often all that's needed to encourage high staff performance. So it's regular, non-threatening, open conversations where mistakes can be made and people are encouraged um, to, to do their best and supported. Often, that most of that happens informally. Formal performance management is characterised by planned, scheduled and documented conversations with staff or contractors, of course, facilitated by the use of structured templates often, like a performance appraisal, performance improvement plans, the acronym you might have heard is PIP for that one. So that's used when progress needs to be documented, maybe when rewards are sometimes, so pay rises might be listed, linked to performance or bonuses, etc., or when dealing with more significant underperformance issues. So what is the first step for, the, for a more formal performance management review? or process is a PIP, a performance improvement plan. It's when parties get together and have a, a discussion that's minuted uh, in, in notes or in a plan. Um, and it should include who the parties to the conversation are, it's usually the manager and the reporting staff member or contractor, the date of the conversation, the conversation, when will the performance be reviewed, and how will it be assessed? What the performance goals and objectives are? What are the required outcomes? How will support be provided? And what are the consequences of continued non-performance or an improvement in performance? Um, and then the manager signs off and then ideally the employee um, signs off. Now, sometimes you can ask employees to do a self-assessment that's a good idea in some situations where they assess their performance against, against criteria um, and they come to you with their assessment. 
and then the manager then reviews their assessment. Some people, employees are really hard on themselves and they'll come with really you know, low performance ratings in certain areas. And the manager goes, but no, you're fabulous. Um, on the other hand, I've seen some employees that think they walk on water and the manager's going, no. <laughs> so again, this is a good process of standardising and recording the expectations of both parties. Rewarding good performance. Okay, uh, rewarding performance can happen in a number of different ways. Um, but it's important to reward. It, it can be simply just by saying a conversation of, of thank you and you did a great job. That's a reward. Um, Non-monetary rewards are really uh, quite common in the not-for-profit government sectors where money isn't dished out or that there's not a philosophy around rewarding people through extra cash. So, of course, it can be through cash, pay rises, bonuses, vouchers, a trip away, a sponsored professional development, someone who's working well might get the opportunity to attend a conference or, or do something uh, special. Um, could be higher duties, a promotion, a promotional or high duties opportunities is a great way, particularly in public sector environments. Uh, they seem to be more popular and commonplace uh, where somebody steps up into a role and therefore they're recognised and paid to step up into that role for a period while their boss is away um, or perhaps in between appoint, appointing a manager, for example, um, an opportunity to participate in special workplace events. So there's lots of ways of reporting, uh, rewarding good performance. And, but the implementation of rewards and recognition programs should be supported by clear and consistent policies. So everybody knows there's a program that it's not um, seen to be specific to certain people. Uh, so reward programs and clear policies and practices that are consistent are important. Okay. We're moving on to if behaviour is inappropriate uh, or you've got an underperforming staff member. What do you do in that situation? Here's some examples that we've had come across our desk. You could read them for yourselves. <laughs> that should be she has started a relationship. Sorry about the typo. And a few more. Okay, tricky situations. So why do employees underperform? Why do these things happen? Well, there's all kinds of reasons for it. Firstly, an employee has an unclear understanding of their role due to absence. They might be working remotely. Um, there might be inadequate position description or role documentation. They're not really sure about their role. Inadequate induction, role instruction, a manager might be absent and unable to support them for whatever reason. Or the employee has an unclear understanding of our performance in their role will be assessed and measured. They know what they're doing, but they don't know how it's being measured and assessed necessarily. Or they lack the qualifications, experience, skills and ability in their role. Or there could be influential internal or external factors such as relationships, conflict, family illness. I had a call this morning from a, a director of a business, three business owners who own this business, and one was going off the rails because there were significant uh, stresses in her life uh, with her family um, and one of her children. So, you know, that can really impact on performance. And the more an organisation can try and understand what's going on, the more you can deal with it and better you can deal with it. So the first step, if there's underperformance, 
or inappropriate behaviour is to seek information, more information to try and understand what's actually going on. This is really important. Otherwise, you can be barking down the wrong tree. Now, for example, in the scenario I just gave you of my phone call this morning, if the organisation took the view of, of um, disciplining the director, then the they're missing the point that the stress is the family. The family, when the sad family situations resolve, things can get back on right, the rails. So the director needs to be supported, but the behaviour needs to be checked at the same time. There needs to be an understanding, a process of relieving the stress at the workplace that relates to the perfect uh, situation rather than uh, going in hard against the director um, and some of the behaviours and things that she has more recently done. So seek information as best you can. Don't assume anything. Don't assume. Assuming can be dangerous because it can often be wrong. Make sure you really do know what's going on and then you can tackle it at the uh, grassroots level once you have a good understanding. So you might need to gather data, consult file notes, emails, is there a pattern or history of this behaviour? Well, with this director, there wasn't. It's just more recently. So clearly, if it hasn't been happening for years and all of a sudden there's an escalation of, of difficulty, then something's probably going on. Are, you, are your assessment standards reasonable and defendable? Measuring performance can be difficult when you don't have a benchmark. So you might have an employee, a new employee or a new function or your new manager, and you feel somebody's not working hard enough or well enough, but you've got no benchmark to assess them on. In a big, big organisation, we've got multiple people doing the same role and experienced managers who know what the standard is and what can be achieved in a certain time frame, for example. It's easier to establish the benchmark. But if that's not the case, then it can be tricky. So think about, are your assessment standards reasonable and defendable? And, and how? How are you going to defend your standards? Do you have the data, et cetera, um, to support the KPIs that you're expecting or the standards that you're expecting? Use multiple sources, uh, ideally. Now, that can be... Uh, information from other people, ideally. So a manager making a decision about an employee, it's hard to make a decision without all that information by yourself and to say someone's not working well. But if two managers agree and there's an external party who's lodged a complaint, <laughs> then, of course, that's giving you a bit more confidence that you need to address, that there is potentially a performance problem there, then the question is, why is this occurring? Are the areas of underperformance significant in relation to the role undertaken? Are you dealing with something that's really important and significant? Or is it trivial? Or is it something that you can fix in another way by giving the role to someone else or restructuring? Is your frustration or the underperformance, is it really significant? Look, sometimes it really is, and you have to jump on it straight away. And other times, so lateness could be really significant or it might not be, depending on the context of the organisation. If you're working in Mari's office, she might be a bit flexible <laughs> with someone who might be late from time to time. But if you've got a contractor who has to uh, provide support at a certain time to an individual, um, consulting support, and they're not, they don't show up, and it's an only an hour consult or something like that, then that's probably going to be a bit more of a serious issue if it happens more than once. <laughs> and what are the employees' reasons to explain their behaviour or poor performance? Again, getting to the root cause of the issue. And are there any mitigating factors? Are there other things going on that is impacting on this that need to be understood? So second step. First step, figure out what's going on. Second step, initiate counselling to discuss the situation as soon as possible too. Don't let it fester and fester because it, things get worse if people are not aware um, that their behaviour is causing conflict or is inappropriate. So it needs to be addressed quickly. 
ideally, and put in an agreed plan in place to improve performance. So to, when you're having a performance uh, improvement conversation, first step is preparation, is probably the most important step is the prep. Um, so I'm just looking at this. So, okay, so you're getting gathering the data. You might say something like, I've got something I'd like to discuss with you that I'll help, that I think will help the team work together more effect effectively. That's your opening line. Or I'd like to talk to you about what happened in the practice session um, with a footy team last week. Can we, uh, something, something happened, I've had a complaint and I'd just like to get, we need to discuss it so I can get your point of view. Let's have a chat about this. Or I need your help to better understand what just happened. Do you have a few minutes right now to discuss this with me? Rather than you storming into the situation and causing a scene, taking the person out and say, let's, let's uh, can we just have a, a conversation about this? Uh, right now, or I have recently received feedback in relation to something, and I would like to hear your view on this. Can we discuss it, please? I think we might have different views about the way we're approaching this client. I'd like to hear your thinking on this and better understand your perspective. Or I'd like to see if we can reach a better understanding about perhaps our time management for example, I really want to hear your feelings about this and share my perspective as well. They're opening lines into a performance feedback conversation. So second steps, explain the facts which you've got. The need to be factual because how I feel, my view is, is not as powerful as this is what the document says, this is what the stats say, this is what the complaint was takes it away from you as the manager but, and, and it puts the scenario to more objective criteria, more objective documentation. Listen and consider their point of view and reach agreement with them. So that's very important that before you make up your mind that something's gone wrong, that you're hearing them and they can, they can see you listening and trying to understand their perspective about what occurred rather than walking to, into a meeting or situation where you already made up your mind that something's gone wrong. Because often, once you've heard another side of the story, you change your view <laughs> um, or tweak your view at least. Um, you have a better, better understanding of it. And then a reach agreement with them about the steps moving forward. Now, the steps moving forward could be an immediate change of behaviour, but it could actually be things like training, education, coaching, mentoring, professional counselling, for example, could be part of the, the plan of change of support that you're giving this person in order to achieve a different outcome. It could mean job redesign, the job is changing, it needs to change, it'll be tweaked, or perhaps in some situations, an alternative role, person's not suitable. Maybe don't have the skills, it's whatever. It might be an alternative role um, in a more significant situation. But it's important, again, that sufficient time is provided to put in place and assess uh, performance and behavioural um, improvement initiatives. So documentation and following up is also very important. Um, if it's a recorded conversation, I don't mean recorded on a phone or anything like that, but if it's a conversation you've had, it's very important to document performance management conversations, particularly if things aren't going well. You've already had that informal discussion with them. You need to escalate that to a formal written process. And that often solves the problem. The first meeting, the first document is often the end of the process. You've got your, your outcomes achieved. Um, it does you usually trigger a change when you, you move to form performance management. And then if needed and things still are not improving and they're significant, then you might need to take disciplinary action. Or if you're dealing with something very serious, 
It could be a, a bullying issue or harassment issue or child protection issue. That then takes it straight to formal performance management or disciplinary action, or at least an investigation review that is much more formalised. So, so disciplinary processes, if you have to move to that, um, in the sorts of example, theft, fraud, all of those areas could move straight to disciplinary action or more formal investigations, for example. Um, disciplinary processes include formal documented discussions, office of support and assistance for all parties, documented outcomes that describes the issue in question and states timeframes for review and reassessment, um, a statement that determination could occur if behaviour performance does not improve to this required standard. And often with disciplinary action, again, depending on what it is, more than one disciplinary meeting is required to work through the disciplinary process, depending on the severity. And then if performance still doesn't improve, you've got a significant situation here or a major incident um, that has completely breached protocols like harassment, bullying, theft, that kind of thing, child protection, um, then you might need to terminate your employee. If you do so, it has to be meet the merit test. It has to be a reasonable action. Uh, it can't be discriminatory. It can't be an unlawful termination to do with their, uh, you know, those discriminatory, non-discriminatory traits, gender, family responsibilities, illness, absence, that kind of thing, authorised absence. It needs to be fair to the employee. You have to go through a process that's procedurally fair and you have to pay whatever contractual um, payments you've you either required by law or under contract. So if you're dealing with a contractor, you should have a termination clause in there, um, a very clear termination clause about if the relationship is ended with your contractor, how does that happen? And is there any penalty if one party uh, cuts out early? Uh, is the decision fair? Your decision, just going back to that, because it's very important. So has that person been treated fairly? Do they have sufficient information to understand what's occurred? Did they know this was wrong? Were they given the opportunity to improve? Was the employee given sufficient opportunity to respond to the allegations before being terminated, which is very important part of procedural fairness? And was the employee offered a support person at their disciplinary meeting, which is also an important part of procedural fairness? Oops, I've gone backwards. Um, and these are some of the discriminatory grounds, which I won't read them all, but I think you're probably very aware, familiar with some of these. So when we're looking at disciplinary action, and I'm, I'm winding up now, this is one of the last slides. Um, I won't go through this slide in any detail, but it's an escalation process. Um, if someone's late, tardy, their dress might not be appropriate, or they've missed a deadline, you'd start with informal discussion. And as the seriousness works down this list, you might then come in at these different trigger points. So if you're dealing with um, bullying, harassment, you might go straight to formal performance appraisal or, or a formal warning or a mediation probably probably around here is where you'd start with a very more serious um, allegation here. And then there's, of course, summary dismissal, which is dismissal on the spot for something that's extremely serious. Okay, there's more information about summary dismissal, which I you can pause the video and have a read of, of the sorts of examples that might go there. And then very important, if you're managing performance um, formally, you've escalated to that, that there are, is very, very clear documentation, what time, what day, who said what, who was present, uh, all that kind of thing. Right, where to get help? Where do you get help from here? Well, you can definitely come to us. Um, we, we do a lot of work in performance management, so call HR Plus. We'd be happy to talk with you. Um, and consultations, of course, are free um, for a chat. We we're quite happy to do that. Um, and if we need to help you any further, we would give you a quote for what that might cost. 
uh, employer, employment relations lawyer is another place um, of support. Uh, the law, people who are legally trained in employment law in particular, if you've got an employment um, matter. There's the Fair Work Ombudsman and Fair Work Commission. Don't go there, they're not able to provide uh, advice in these areas. They manage complaints, but they don't give advice. Um, family, friends, don't go there. Board members, other staff who are unqualified and have limited knowledge and experience, <laughs> don't go there either. But by all means, go to your colleagues if you're dealing with a fairly minor workplace matter that you, you can, uh, you, you'd like to bounce ideas off. And of course, your professional association, the SDA, I'm sure would be very happy to talk to you about any concerns you might have in there in your workplace um, and, and guide you where you can get support. So are there any other questions? That's the end of the presentation. Mari, have I missed anything? Has anything come in? Beautiful. Thank you, Linda. That was terrific. Really helpful and great to see that process um, and the structure that sits around uh, the employment side of things. Um, I can't see any questions that have come through in either the Q&A box or the chat box, um, but I guess a general one for you is around um, any specific tips about how we apply this information that you provided with us today into the sports nutrition um, environment. And I guess an example I'd give for that would be particularly that onboarding stage where budgets often are tight. Um, what are some practical strategies that provide a win-win um, outcome for both the employer and the employee um, when the employer's budget might be tight? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's not unique to sports nutrition environments. It's about having conversations about resourcing, um, properly resourcing, but you can still have those conversations and they fall on deaf ears. So like a lot of cash-strapped organisations and, and industries, you know, our view is you have to be careful about, so if you're hiring somebody on a contract rate or you're managing a contractor, for example, or employee, you don't have a budget for performance management, one of the downsides of that is that it probably won't happen or, or people, are, people are working outside their hours to manage these things, which is usually what does happen. Um, there's a lack of attention um, to these sorts of matters or people are doing this outside of their paid hours. That automatically means that it can't be done well, really. Um, so if you're in a position of negotiation, if you're a manager, um, and you need to negotiate time in your role to manage performance. That's a conversation you need to have with your one up, your manager, your particular manager. You need time to be able to manage your staff and their performance on an ongoing basis, um, rather than just be paid sessionally or for pieces of work which don't allow that. And we we see this quite a lot. I have to say, in a number of organisations and sporting where there's a lot of sessional work is, is um, very, very common. And then it's, I mean, you, you don't have a lot of uh, leeway sometimes to negotiate uh, rates of pay with contractors, for example, because budgets are very tight, but that just means that things will slip. And, and maybe, look, in some not-for-profit organisations, they say to us, look, we can't pay and we know that means that our standards might slip. We can't do all the things we want. That's just what we have to do. We've accepted that. We've accepted a lower standard of performance, potentially, not always, that's for sure. But we're accepting this because we just, we just can't pay for it, um, which is sad, but that's just reality, I think. It is reality in the not-for-profit sector. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, I think... Um... That's helpful. And I think one of the other examples too that I've been aware of, particularly for sports dietitians, is that um, if, say in the, the example of team sports, if the club doesn't have enough funds to pay for the full suite of um, nutrition servicing that they're after, 
um, a compromise can be that the the more of the group session type work is done under the budget that is available and then if you know individual players or athletes need you know one-on-one -on -one servicing that could then be put through the dietitian's private practice so you know it comes down to an individual basis is one of the strategies that absolutely um, that absolutely. Become a... being very clear what you can offer for what and what you can't offer for the budget that they've got. That some, sometimes they'll give you their budget, say, look, we can only spend this. What can you do? And you go back and say, okay, for that, I can do this, 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 and this. I can't mm. do that, but we can maybe do that as in, private, in our private practice or through my private practice or another organisation can handle that for you. I mean, we do that in our consulting practice all the time. Um, we provide a proposal of this is what we can do for what or within a budget, and this is what you can do to handle those other things um, if you don't have a budget for it. But it's, I suppose it's hard, isn't it? But if you set a standard of, of, of working for little, you know, you're doing too much for not very little, it's really hard for you to get out of that cycle. Um, and it's hard for your colleagues and in your industry too if they see respected people in their industry charging too little or doing work for free, you know, on the side, it, 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 it's going to be hard to increase the worth of the work you do if too much of that's going on. Mm. Yeah, spot on, because absolutely. The, the clients then expect it. The football teams and the sporting clubs, the soccer clubs, they're all expecting uh, physios, uh, sports dietitians to work for very little or inadequate remuneration. And it's almost um, industry has to support and believe in itself, which I know you do, and say, no, we, we actually don't work for that. So you can't get us to do this, but we can do this. You know, we might have publications and papers we can provide to you, um, or we, we're available for private consults and we can do a, you know, an attractive rate for your club and your members. Um, and here it is, for mm. example. Yeah. Yeah, true. It's hard. It is difficult for professionals um, like sports dietitians, physios, uh, when it comes to that kind of work. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm mindful to have time. We've just gone over, but just one more, I think, key point to touch on as well. And you um, touched on it briefly in the presentation around the, the um, opportunity to give new graduates, you know, job opportunities and to get started. Um, the risk that can come to an employer in that scenario too around yes. scope of practice and ensuring that that position description and what is being expected of um, the new employee or the new graduate actually sits within their scope um, and that you know, what's being asked of the employee is relevant to their skills, knowledge and also level level of experience um, and that links back to that onboarding um, onboarding stage they take a lot of work that it's, it's you you are getting a cheaper more cost effective resource but really they need very close um, direction much higher level of supervision so even though you're saving money because they're they're less uh, costly resource that you have to put more into the management of of new graduates and, and new staff just to get them up to the level that you need them to be working and, mm. yeah more yeah. resource intensive to manage yeah. graduates that's for sure absolutely um, and another strategy too I think that works well when you're doing that position description when you've got that full list of tasks that you ultimately want to have done you know, by the time you actually calculate the time attached to each of those items, what does that extrapolate out to in terms of an hourly rate once all of those items have been delivered? And does that hourly rate actually reflect the appropriate award um, for that role? And also industry standards. So we've got the consultancy fee guide that sits in the member portal, which also provides guidance in terms of what is being paid in the market um, as well. So I think it all links back to what you've said is getting that job set up right at the outset um, yeah. in terms of the structure. And, and reviewing it as, as the person is in the role. Like it doesn't mean that it's fixed in stone because if it's particularly if it's a new role, 
and a new employee who may not have had experience working for you in that area, things can change and you need to be, be willing to renegotiate to a certain level, of course, um, the parameters of the role. But the question about appropriate pay rates, drop into the seminar that we're webinar on Thursday because we're going to be talking more about contractual arrangements in that webinar. Yeah, beautiful. Perfect. Thanks, Linda. Um, I, am mindful, I am mindful of time, so we will wrap it up there. If you do think of any questions um, after the webinar, feel free just to let us know, and I'm sure, Linda, that would be okay Absolutely. for you to answer those for us. So thanks so much for attending today. Um, we really hope that you've got some useful information out of it that you can apply to your workplace. Um, and yeah, huge thanks again, Linda, for your time um, in doing this today. Um, and for our members, remember to you can log 10 CDP points um, for today as well. So, um, and it is being recorded. So if you want to recap over any of the content, um, we'll let you know when that's up in the Moodle platform to be able to re-review it. So thanks again. And um, yeah, thank you again, Linda, for a great presentation. We'll see you again on Thursday.